Hi, everybody, and welcome to the June 16th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the impact of this week's shooting, injuring House Majority Whip Steve Scalise and several others at the Republican Congressional Baseball Practice on Wednesday. Patty Calhoun from Westward, we have seen, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to call it surprising, but it was uh, an optimistic sign of unity from Congress. I think how optimistic I am about it lasting. What are your thoughts from the reaction to the shooting uh, from Wednesday? Well, it was great to see people come together and actually, with no longer a house divided, brought together by the great American pastime. It would be nice if the second greatest American pastime wasn't going out and shooting people you disagree with. Doesn't matter what your politics are. I mean, why is this, does anyone consider that a solution? David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. You've been involved in, in countless gun control debates. Do you think this event brings up yet another gun control debate, or will this unity that we've seen help bypass that? Well, uh, the criminal came from Illinois, which is one of the very few states in the country that requires a, a state license to own a long gun. So given that he's, he obtained those guns in, in one of the most restrictive states, under a system that couldn't possibly and never has had never has had any possibility of long gun licensing being enacted in Congress, um, probably not. Um, but obviously, the we, we saw the difference in the London Bridge attacks when there were most of the police there were unarmed at the beginning, and so either ran away or one brave officer fought back with his baton against the three guys with knives, and law enforcement armed law enforcement showed up eight minutes later after there were a bunch of dead bodies. Very, very fortunately, because Scalise has police protection being in the leadership, there was a good guy, two good guys, one man, one woman, with a gun right there who took action, and that's the difference between zero deaths versus what would have been dozens. So the American policy of having armed law enforcement is certainly a very good idea, especially in these times. Eric Sonneman, political analyst. We've seen Congress appear unified on this, but the public has gone right back to their corners, each blaming each other for the tone causing this event. Is that going to get any better seeing some possible unity from Congress? Oh, maybe at the margins and maybe temporarily, but no, not over the long term. I think this whole thing is so indicative and so disturbing of the divide in this country. And yes, politics ain't beanbags. And parties ought to fight hard for their viewpoints and ideologies but we used to the way I put it I use football terms you know the parties used to fight between the 40 yard lines Democrats played on the left 40 Republicans played on the right 40 now you have these parties incredibly caffeinated up in terms of both party bases and they're playing down by the goal lines and there's just such a vast divide uh, in between and, and and very few figures that can unify uh, that can unify that divide and the rhetoric that is out there. I mean, Megyn Kelly, of all people, is hosting, I think, on her show this Sunday, Alex Jones from Infowars. I mean, you know, talk about somebody who takes the rhetoric to completely irresponsible letters, uh, levels, excuse me. And uh, 
it's very worrisome. This is a fragile country at this point in time. We take it for granted, and uh, you know, I'm worried about more of this as opposed to uh, heading in the right direction. Justine Sandoval, political activist, do you think this incident will uh, modify the way the loyal opposition makes its case in public? Um, you know, I grew up when Columbine, Columbine happened, and we've just experienced all these different shootings over and over throughout years, and I feel like we've almost become numb to it, where it becomes not such a big outcry anymore because we see shoot mass shootings on the daily. And so it's really hard for me to be optimistic that we learn lessons from these types of situations because throughout the years that this keeps occurring and on more you know, massive scales and more regularly, we still don't seem to have taken any lessons from it or have any way that we can create better dialogue in this country and we move forward. So I'm not very optimistic about anything changing from this situation. Let's bring it local for this topic. Representative Jared Polis is the latest to announce his gubernatorial campaign this week. He is the fifth heavy hitter to join the already very competitive Democratic primary. Other candidates in the race include fellow Congressman Ed Perlmutter, former State Treasurer Kerry Kennedy, State Senator Mike Johnston, and entrepreneur Noel Ginsburg. Patty, I don't think you give up a sweet gig as the congressional uh, representative of CD2, a position as a Democrat you can have for almost as long as you want, unless you think you can win. What do you think of Polis's chances to win the Democratic nomination for governor? Well, if he does as well as he did at the congressional baseball game last night, he's got a really good chance. He, four RBIs, got the winning <laughs> run coming in. Talk about bringing people together. And in fact, Jared Polis's behavior this week has been uh, really impressive, I think. He, his announcement on Reddit got a lot more lot more following than we got from Ed Perlmutter when he announced. There seems to be some excitement. He's coming out with... Uh, certainly more radical views in some ways. He is pushing for states' rights for marijuana. He's talking about marijuana. He's talking about issues that are important to Colorado. So he could have a pretty interesting run. I mean, we haven't heard a lot lately from Kerry Kennedy's campaign, although I know they're cleaning up their mailing list because I think I've gotten 10 emails from them in the last day. Noel Ginsburg is an interesting candidate, but I wish he were using his last name in his campaign. Noel for Colorado just is not ringing a bell with most people right now because there's way too many people who've got, yeah, exactly, Tom Noel, they might think he's running. Uh, we've got way too many people with really great credentials and great name recognition, and I'm looking forward to an incredible discussion leading up to the primary and hope the Democrats behave themselves better than the Republicans when Dan Mays was the last man standing. <laughs> David, we have a, literally an entire year to talk about the Democratic primary, so we have plenty of time to, to, to pit the different candidates to each other. But what does this announcement do to the battle right now? By the way, if Noel Ginsburg wins, then his wife would be the first Noel. <laughs> um, in a normal year... Or the first Ginsburg. Yes. <laughs> in, a, in a normal year... Um, Kerry Kennedy versus Mike Johnston, you'd say, boy, that, that's, those are two pretty solid, experienced candidates. But then layering on, Ed, Ed, Ed Perlmutter and Jared Polis, what a uh, treasure trove of riches the Democrats have for their choices. Uh, Perlmutter is an outstanding campaigner, but, you know, campaign skills, no, nobody better than him, maybe nobody in the state. Uh, Mike Kaufman might, might be equal to that. And, and like Kaufman, he keeps winning in a district that is competitive by voter registration and where he's really to the left of the 
politics of that district, and he keeps winning and, and sometimes making it look easy, even when it's not. He's like Joe DiMaggio in that regard. Polis has, has won statewide in a, uh, uh, the State Board of Education race. He's also a, a even if not quite as skilled as his Perlmutter, a hardworking campaigner, and of course has a lot of money that he can self-fund with. So it's going to be a formidable race all around. Eric, as you look at, we have been tantalized by the idea of a battle royale primary before, especially with these kinds of headliners, as David mentioned. But when we're talking about this next spring, do you see all of them being still viable candidates? Possibly. The first decision they're all going to have to make, and let me preface all this by, I mean, echoing both what Patty and David have said, I have never seen... There are plenty of other political talents, but I've never seen quite the accumulation of political talent that is signed up for this race right now. It is a treasure trove, to steal David's phrase. It will also be a free-for-all, unlike anything we've seen. These are ambitious and very able people. And as we talked off the air, Dominic, I am not convinced that the field is closed. Uh, I continue to hear buzz about Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn. I think if she's going to make a move, it would likely be in early July at the beginning of the next reporting period. But after this reporting period, I believe the governor is pushing her or nudging her in that direction. So, I mean, a, a field of five formidable candidates could stay at five or it could become six, and we shall see soon. The, back to the other point, I think the real question is, do they go through the caucus process or do most of these candidates say the heck with that antiquated process and just petition on? If, the, if most of them go through the caucus process, then by definition it will get sorted out because you need 30% to get on and you can't carve the pie that many ways. But I would anticipate that um, these people are not going to let their political ambitions be subject to an antiquated caucus process and many of them will petition onto the ballot. Yes, there'll probably be some winnowing, or at least in terms of who is in the finals versus not, but I can make a plausible scenario, a plausible logical case for the viability of any of these people. Justin, you've been at many a Colorado Democratic event. How should Colorado Democrats feel about all of these headliners in this big race? Well, personally, I feel I'm a little scared here. There's a lot of heavy hitters, like everyone said, in this race for the Democratic primary. And considering that the ballot this year will be an open primary, I think that that could be problematic and it could divide, you know, as in a lot of different ways. Uh, Jared Polis entering the race, I think, really s would speak to a lot of the the more progressive. We were a Bernie state, so you have a lot of these, like, uh, new progressives that are really pushing for a more, a, even more liberal agenda. I think Polis fits into a lot of that. But then you have Ed Perlmutter, who's also very popular throughout the state, who would probably do better in the general election, I think, than most candidates would. But you really have a situation here where our party is very divided in the state. There's a lot of people falling on different lines and different opinions. And now that you add the open primary into it, it's a very it's a scary situation for us. And it could be very well mean the loss of the governorship for us. It's going to be a tough race. On the heels of the Polis announcement, the race of the Democratic nomination in Congressional District 2 is already in full force. Former Secretary of State candidate Joe Neguse announced he will run, joining Ken Toltz, founder of Safe Campus Colorado, and Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action. David, Boulder uh, is the big part of CD2. It, it also includes mountain towns. It's not just Boulder, uh, but that Boulder is your backyard. From what we know right now, there's only three candidates. There might be more. Who has the advantage? Well, there's only one who's 
sort of oh. officially said it. Sure. Jonah Goose is the one who's set him. He's definitely running. The others have speculated about it. He's he's the front runner. I believe he won. He's won in that district before in the Board of Regents race, and he's also run statewide for Secretary of State, and in a Republican year, uh, did much better than most Democrats. Came within in two points of winning that. He. One of the reasons people liked him, and he did so well, uh, was he was honest and ran a very clean and civil campaign, as did his opponent, uh, Wayne Williams, the Republican. Uh, so we, we had, a, in, in that race, a, 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 an escape from uh, the, the lies and incivility uh, of, of a lot of other politics. So uh, because he's running one in that district, I think he's going to be very formidable. Uh, and he's, he's, he's definitely the front runner at this point. Um, he's probably on the weak, weaker on the, on the fundraising side than his two potential opponents. Uh, Ken Toltz uh, ran for uh, the Tom Tancredo seat in uh, the southern suburbs in 2000, lost by a, a, about 10 points. Uh, you know, so, and he's, he certainly has Colorado roots. His family founded a, a, a dry cleaning chain. He doesn't really have many ties, established ties with the district yet, but he, he's certainly got, got Colorado roots, and presumably with all the, the dry cleaning uh, money, he can, he can self-finance to at least some degree. And then this third person you mentioned, Shannon Watts, she is uh, from Kentucky and then Indiana, a, a PR executive who used to work for uh, Monsanto, so she can certainly get all the, the pro-GMO vote in the Boulder Democratic primary. All four of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and now works for Bloomberg. And obviously, with, with that connection, she has the potential of, of unlimited uh, billionaire loot uh, behind her campaign. Since Negus has kind of wrapped up the pro-civility and honesty vote, uh, her record uh, really sets her up well for the, uh, the, the folks who uh, are on the other side of that issue. The pro-civility honest vote. It's, a, it's nice to know that's still out there. Eric, a Democrat who wins the primary for CD2 can likely have that job as long as he or she would like it. Um, does that put extra pressure on the party or, uh, I guess, some of the godfathers or godmothers of the party kind of behind the scenes to make sure the right candidate wins? That assumes that there are godfathers or godmothers behind the political parties these days. Ask the Republican Party how that worked in the presidential race. <laughs> Good point. Uh, I think there are really two headlines here, Dominic. One is the ripple effect that this year is having with all the talent pool going for the governor's race. Well, that is creating openings in the 7th Congressional District, uh, Perlmutter's District, now this opening in the 2nd Congressional District. And there will be a whole new generation of Colorado politicos, politicians that we're probably talking about 5, 10, 15 years from now who come to the fore this year. The second headline to me is that this new generation emerging will happen in a year, and we're a long way away, a year from the primary, a year and a half from the general. But my surmise here is that Colorado is a lean blue state, slightly lean blue state, but that 2018 could be a big blue year in a lean blue state. To Justine's pass on the first topic, I don't think Democrats have to worry all that much about losing the governor's race. I think whoever that nominee is is going to be in a very strong position to hold the governor's office just because of the tenor of the year. So the Republicans, again, yes, they have all the branches of government in D.C. right now, but in terms of Colorado, in terms of 2018, they may see another generational change go by where their bench 
doesn't come to the fore and the Democratic bench with people like Jonah Goose, with people like whether it's Brittany Pedersen or Andy Kerr or Dominic Marino in the 7th Congressional District, those are going to be names we're talking about for quite a period of time in this state. Justine, we've heard one official for Joe Neguse, two expected with uh, Tolts and Watts. Do you expect more Dems to come out for the CD2 primary? Definitely. I've seen, I was surprised, a lot of people jumping into the race for Perlmutter's seat. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised that the same thing happens with CD2. These are seats that people definitely want, and you can have that seat for a long time in Colorado. I mean, you look at people like Diana DeGette in Denver who sat in their congressional seats for a very long time, and it's, it's pretty much a, a good gig to have if you are, get that seat in Colorado. So I definitely expect a lot more people to jump in this race. There's been a lot of positive feedback from um, Jonah Goose getting into the race, and we'll see more people come along, and we'll see what happens with CD2. Patty, what do you think it takes to win the CD2 nomination for the Democrats as it's currently drawn because it's Boulder and Mountain Towns? Well, but still Boulder and the people who support Boulder are going to be the lion's share of the vote. So you want someone who's going to be fairly progressive, have a good backstory, and it is hard to beat Joe Neguse's backstory or the fact how he campaigned in his last campaigns. David's absolutely right that he has been um, civic-minded, he's been a gentleman, he hasn't... And he's still excited voters. So I think he's going to be a really tough one to beat. I think someone who's just moved to Boulder is not going to be as impressive. That's going to be Shannon Watts's problem. Ken Toltz, that he ran against Tancredo in a completely different district, I don't think is going to excite Boulder, uh, Boulderites as much. I think Joan Goose getting in as early as he did might discourage others. But I'm sure we'll see more because if Joe gets it, he's going to lock up that. He's young. He will lock it up for a long time. So if anyone has ever wanted to run in this district, now's the time. Colorado's Democratic congressional delegation joined a lawsuit against President Trump on Wednesday, claiming he violated the U.S. Constitution by accepting gifts or other benefits in connection to his global businesses. In the second claim of its kind this week, plaintiffs are citing the Foreign Emoluments Clause, which restricts government officials from accepting payments from foreign governments. Eric, anytime I see a lawsuit include entire Democratic delegations from across Congress, I'm not so worried about the legal ramifications as it looks more like a political situation. What's your estimation of what we're seeing? Well, I think it is as much about politics as it is about law. David's the lawyer at the table, and I'm going to go out on a limb and make a supposition that before three or four months ago, David may be the only person in the table or the only person in our view and audience who really was familiar with the, the word emoluments. Uh, I'd like to think I'm a reasonably well-read person, and I can't say I was particularly familiar with, uh, with, with, with that word, but it has certainly come to the fore, courtesy of Donald Trump and the Trump family. I don't know if the lawsuit itself as a legal matter has legs uh, as a political matter. It is one more opportunity and one more issue on which to attract the president. As someone who finds so much of what this White House is doing disturbing, and that's using a very uh, modest word, but uh, I could go stronger than disturbing. The fact that the Trump family, a already very rich family, may be further enriching themselves, is it wrong? Yes, it's wrong. Is it at the top of my list of concerns about what's going on in Washington, D.C.? No, it doesn't rise to that level. Justine, are Democrats spending too much time focused on the president and different legal issues surrounding him and not enough on what Republicans are actually passing in Congress? Um, I mean, it's difficult 
to say because I think it's important that we do check the president. Right now, the courts are the only check that is going, is going on right now with not having any help in Congress and the presidency doing the things that they're doing right now. So I think it's important that they do focus on those things. But then you have a health care bill that is being secretly written, you know, going on, and that should be something that's a main focus. But I think that the fact is the reason why presidents don't do business on their golf courses is because personal interest and policy don't mix. And I think it's important that they do highlight this because it is it is disturbing that this is going on. And I think that they have a duty to bring up these issues, but there needs to be some kind of balance. I know that they have a target on the president's back and they're out to get him, but it's really important that we continue to focus and to try to move along and push policy forward as well. Patty, is the Carter delegation making a statement or going along for the ride? I think they're making the statement that anyone has to right now to just be on the record if you're a Democrat against Trump. But where's the surprise? We knew this was going to be sticky with all just even the name on all the buildings around the world. We knew it was going to be challenging having a president who is so involved, whose kids are still involved in the company. Um, this is less of a concern right now than the Russian investigation still going on, the FBI investigation, as long as Mueller still has that job before he's fired. And of all the foreign interests, I am still most interested in what exactly Russia is doing with American elections, whether the candidate is Democratic, whether the candidate is Republican, whether it's a third party. Are, is our electorate safe? David, as uh, Eric so eloquently uh, um, previewed, you are the esteemed lawyer at the table. Uh, what do we need to know about the situation? The complaint is very well written, and I encourage people to read it, uh, in, written by a, a top uh, left-leaning public interest law firm in, in, in D.C., and, and it, it effectively raises the, the broad concerns about corruption and, and foreign influence uh, that are at the part of the spirit of the Foreign Emoluments Clause. The problem for the suit, besides the, A, the difficulty of whether Congress people have standing on this and whether a court can issue an, an injunction against a, actually a president himself, in between that on the merits, there's no case precedent on this, but so the precedents come from the Office of Legal Counsel, which advises the president. We have a, a long history of those. All of those precedents about what's covered by it never include having your own business that has foreign dealings. So, so for example, Nelson Rockefeller, vice president, owned zillions of shares of oil companies. Uh, our recent Commerce Secretary Pritzker, uh, lots of big owner of, of Hyatt Hotels. Those businesses, of course, did business with foreign governments, where like foreigners would, foreign governments would buy their products, and foreign governments would also give them licenses and trademarks and things in the normal course of business, arm's length business transactions. And nobody ever suggested until now that that's, that might be an emoluments clause violation. So I think they're going to have trouble winning on the merits in court, but I think this is more for the court of public opinion about the, I, I think, what is at least, I think, ethically, if not legally, uh, Trump's problems with mixing uh, his business and uh, his public duties. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. We'll return to the court of a pub public opinion specifically regarding University of Colorado's athletic department. This has never been a department that has been known for its sensitivity 
on gender issues, sexual harassment, and worse. And this week we find out that, oh, right before Mike McIntyre has a big honking raise up to just short of $3 million a year, we find out that he paid a whopping $100,000 because of the failure to deal with the Joe Tumkin issue in a timely manner. That would be like us giving up our salary at this table. You know, he's not even going to notice it. It is a drop in the bucket. <laughs> so shame, shame on CU for leaking it in a way that made it look like the raise was going to be all okay. That kind of wisdom deserves double your rate. Consider yourself, your, your, your weekly rate is double, Patty. Way to go. David. The disaster going on at the, at the state mental hospital, including the, the recent resignation of, of the director, because as the federal inspectors are saying, it's, it is in unsafe conditions and it's understaffed. This is a good example of how when government tries to do everything, it doesn't do its core responsibilities well. The state constitution requires the government to have a mental hospital. And yet with this biggest budget ever, over $28 billion, they can't find the staffing to run a mental hospital adequately. If they did fewer things, like welfare for Quentin Tarantino and lots and lots of other projects, uh, in, in all kinds of corporate welfare, which is prohibited by the Constitution, they might have the money to run what they're supposed to do properly. Eric. Huge uh, second to, to Patty's disgrace about CU, but for, for me, it has to be Colorado House Minority Leader Patrick Neville from Castle Rock, who sent out a really, I'm going to use the word obscene, not in a, any kind of sexual way, but just in a raw political way, uh, fundraising email shortly after the shooting in Washington or in Alexandria on the baseball diamond trying to take advantage of that or using words like tolerance preaching progressives and trying to raise conservative money off of an American tragedy. Justine. Well, what Eric said, <laughs> I totally agree. My disgrace of the week would be definitely uh, uh, Representative Neville, who I refer to as Baby Neville. <laughs> so Baby Neville, I just thought it was just really bad timing. It was really uncalled for. And it goes back to the saying, uh, people in glass houses, there's been a lot of gun attacks from people on the right as well. So for us to take this moment and for him to make it another wedge issue instead of unifying people, I thought was very disgraceful and very tacky. Let's say something nice about somebody very quickly. Patty. Happy Father's Day. I'm lucky to have my father here, and all of Colorado is lucky that he's here, too. Here, here. David. The president's new Cuba policy to stop tourist money from flowing to the Cuba military, which is the leading neo-colonial imperialist force in, in the Western Hemisphere. Eric. One of our most avid viewers, Tim Jackson, who is uh, on, a, on the ride to Rockies this week, and he is on a tandem bike leading a blonde, blind rider. This is not the first time he has done that. Right on, Tim. And uh, this is the second time I've shouted them out, but the Birdseed Collective, who is giving away free lunch every Monday um, to students in our kids in Globeville and in Swansea neighborhood. I want to second uh, Eric's thought about uh, our big fan, Tim Jackson, and George McDermott, who are both riding the ride, ride the Rockies, 83 miles from Durango to uh, Ridgeway. Good luck, fellas. Uh, way to go. That's all the time we had tonight. Thanks for tuning in. As always, be sure to check out our podcast on iTunes and for our CIO posting segment on Twitter and Facebook. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night.